Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, good morning, Venture. It is uh, great to be back, back in the pulpit. I've been back in the office for a couple of weeks, but it's great to be back up here and to be with you guys. We've had some great teaching over the last month, but I'm excited as we jump back into the book of James. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of James. Uh, if you didn't bring one with you or you're not using a device, you can use one of the blue ones right in front of you. It's page 1201. We're going to be in James chapter four. And uh, if you're maybe brand new to venture or it's been a little while since we've been in James, it's a pretty simple book. That's one of the things I, I like about James. You can kind of jump in and back out because he's just so simple and clear with this predominant theme of James, the brother of Jesus, little brother of Jesus, who's writing to Christians. And the basic theme of the book is, if you say you have faith, then live it. If you say you believe these things, then do it. And he says it in really direct ways. James is one of those writers, he doesn't pull any punches. He just goes right to the point of it because he's determined as this leader of the church, he, he led a real church. He was in Jerusalem. He was considered one of the greatest leaders of the early church. And he's using this position of authority as he looks at the church that even in the early church, he already sees people who've kind of taken on this belief of Christianity, but it's not really showing up in their lives. And so he speaks in really direct, practical ways of what does faith look like? And at the beginning of James chapter four, uh, Chuck walked us through that passage where, where he talked about one of the key things about faith is that God opposes proud people. You can't be proud before God. In fact, if you wanna have a close relationship with God, you have to humble yourself before him. He says, if you'll draw near to him in humility, man, God loves nothing more than drawing near to us in that. Now at the end of chapter four, we're gonna be looking at verses 11 through 17. He's gonna now apply that of what does that look like or what it shouldn't look like. In fact, I entitled the message, just don't. There's some things that James just says, hey, in light, if you're gonna really be humble for, before God, you can't act like you're God in these key areas of your life. And I, I would say, I think all of us have a little bit of a God complex. Maybe not all the time. Maybe we're not so narcissistic all the time. But I think in key areas, we, we kind of like to insert ourselves into the role that God should play in our life. Sometimes you'll, you'll see or read about people. Some people have huge delusions, a full-blown God complex. In fact, there's an interesting book, The Three Christ of Ypsilanti. And it's written by a, a doctor, he's a psychiatrist, Milton Rokich. And he had three patients, he was in Ypsilanti, Michigan, he had three patients who had a full-blown God complex. All of three of them thought they were the Messiah. And so that's why it's called the three Christ of Ypsilanti. And he, he wasn't having any breakthrough with any of them, so he tried something interesting. He put them all in the same recovery group together. <laughs> Just kind of a 12-step program for, you know, Messiah would have and, and so as they are in the group together, he, he describes some of the conversations they had. Where, where one of them would say, you know, I have been sent to save the world. I am the Messiah of the world. And, and Rokich would ask him, well, how do you know that? He said, because God told me. And another one would speak up and say, I never told you that. <laughs> then the third one would say, I'm tired of you guys pretending like you're me. He, every so often, he said there'd be glimmers of insight as they heard each other. And they would go, wait, wait, this can't be adding up. Why are we doing this? Now, I, I don't think anybody here, hopefully, has a full-blown God complex like that. But as you go through a passage and as James directs some things in our life, he, he's gonna point out some of the things that we're doing, we're doing it, 
because we've elevated ourselves in pride and we're actually taking God's position. And he says, just don't do that. Look at the first one. The first just don't is don't judge others, especially Christians. Don't judge others. Now, some of you go, oh yeah, this is a problem for a lot of people. Some people are just judgy. In fact, if you ask most people about the church, they go, oh, I don't like church, it's judgy. It's just, I mean, I remember the old, remember the Dennis, uh, Dana Carvey skit, the church lady that used to be on Saturday Night Live? She'd talk about people and they go, hmm. I mean, the whole thing was built on she's a church lady. Kind of that judgy attitude. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you go, yeah. Man, that's what I can't stand about. Church is filled with hypocrites. Do you know that's a judgy statement you just made? See, the judgy goes on both sides of it. And, and as we look at this, James is telling us, man, this is not to be part of our behavior. Look how he says, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Now remember, James is writing Christians. And so, so maybe you're here today and you go, man, I don't have a relationship with Christ. One thing I hope you would be encouraged, this is what the Bible tells Christians to live up to, whether we're doing it or not. We may struggle with these things. But as he's talking to Christians, he says, man, don't speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So notice the first way that our judging usually shows up is how we talk about each other, what we say about other people, how we, we're quick to condemn in it or we point things out. And when he, when he says you're judging the law, remember in James chapter two, he talked about the royal law, the royal law of love, that the, the whole law as you looked at it, it was boiled down to the royal law of love is that you love God with all your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself. He says, when you've moved into this category, the way you're talking, man, you've set yourself above that law. It's like you say, well, I, I know I'm supposed to love others, but you know, I've got a special role. I have a prophetic gift. I see things. I need to call them out in ways like few other people. And we can put ourselves above that. Look what he says. There's only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and destroy. There's only one person who has the right to judge. He's the one who has the ability both to condemn in judgment, destroy, but he also is the only one who has the ability to save. The, the one who is willing to lay down his life so that people wouldn't have to face judgment is the only one who has the level of discernment he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who do you think you are in this? And, and, and he's really strong in this. Part of this, he gets it from his big brother. There's few things that Jesus was more direct about than this issue of judgment. In fact, in, in Matthew 7, 1 and 2, he says, judge not that you be not judged. Judge not lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Judge not lest you be judged. Now, I wanna pause for just a minute. I would say at this point in human history, especially in our country, this is probably the most quoted verse and the most misquoted verse in our country. Anytime something comes up in a context with it, if, if, you know, somebody's living their life and they go, man, I should just be free to live my life the way I want to live my life. And if you say anything against it and go, mm, I don't think that's right. What's the first verse that's thrown out? Judge not lest you be judged. I wish you were more like Jesus. You're just judging me. Anybody heard that? And so, so you look at this and you go, okay, where is the balance on this thing? I mean, James and Jesus, they're really strong in one way. Look, I want to just take a minute and, and talk through what this verse in particular, judge not lest you be judged, what it does not mean. 
And then we'll look at what is James and Jesus? What are both of them? What are they teaching us in it? What does it mean in this admonition? So the first thing, judge not lest that you be not judged. This does not mean we should never evaluate or discern other people's behavior. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is not saying that you, you're not allowed to look at anyone and discern what's going on in their life, discern and evaluate behavior with that. Now, that's how it's thrown out today. Judge not lest you be judged. Who are you to look at my life at all? Who do you say anything about me? You, you'll, you'll hear it in that context. That's not what Jesus means. How do I know that? How can I say that so authoritatively? Because later in the exact same chapter, look at Jesus' words. We, we gotta let Jesus interpret Jesus. Look what Jesus says. He says, beware of the false prophets. Woo, judgy statement there, Jesus. He says, no, wait a second though. Who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. He said, there's people out there that are destroying lives and you need to be aware of them. Now, how would you be aware of them? Well, you can identify them by their fruit. That is by the way they act. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. So there, there is a place here where this is Jesus, by the way, the exact same one who just said, judge not lest you be judged. He is saying though, that doesn't mean I throw out all discernment. That doesn't mean I just, oh, anything anybody does, I just look at it and go, well, who am I to say? Jesus says, no, wait a second. There's dangerous people out there. There's destruction out there. And, and so there's a place of evaluating and knowing people by their fruit. The, the second thing is, this does not mean we should never tell someone they're wrong or sinful. And th this is where it gets thrown out the most. If, if somebody in their life, especially in culture today, we have some categories that everybody say, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong. But there's a lot of categories today and kind of the, the ethos of the day is, as long as I'm not hurting anyone else, who are you to tell me how to live my life? Who are you to say my life is wrong? Who are you to say my choices, my sexual choices or anything? The, the whole category of it, you're not allowed. I mean, you're using words like sinful and wrong with that. It's so judgy. It's so judgmental in it. And, and as you, you hear that, guys, hear me. We, it's almost like we've thrown out the, the category of judgment completely, like God's totally against judgment. And they'll say that verse. I've, I've heard that people say, judge not lest you be judged. Why can't you just be more like Jesus? Guys, God is not against the concept of judgment. In fact, I mean, there's a whole book of the Bible called Judges. And if you read through that book, it's interesting. You know the problem that was happening in the nation over and over again? There's this one line that says over and over again. The people would reach this point where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody got to determine from their own personal perspective what was right and wrong. And it led to disaster. There's a place, there's a place in scripture and my judgment it should never be based on who I am, what I think is right or wrong. But there's a place of calling people to, here's what God said. This is how God defines it. That's why as a church, we are so committed to teaching through the Bible. That's why as a church, we, we constantly put ourselves under God's word that we go, man, I've got to come back to it as my source of truth because I've got my own opinions on things and culture changes in all different ways. And I may feel things personally. There's times I read the Bible and I'm like, oh, I don't like that. But when I start wavering and making decisions on that standard, then it's free for everyone to do what is right in their own eyes. And no one was better at this than Jesus. Isn't it interesting? Jesus, who's the living embodiment of holiness, he never wavered on God's truth. And yet he had this ability that some of the most broken people in the world who had felt most judged were attracted to him. 
That's why this summer I've been reading through the gospels. I encourage you, I go back to them again and again because I have to read through how Jesus treated people. I have to read how he spoke and looked at it. I have this living embodiment of what it looks like. In fact, one of my favorite stories is in John chapter eight, the story of the woman that was caught in adultery. And you remember the story, she's caught in adultery. They grab her, they throw her in front of Jesus. And they say, hey, what are you gonna do here, Jesus? The law says she should be stoned. She needs to be condemned. Let's execute some judgment today. Now, there's so many problems with what they're doing. One, they're, they're doing exactly what James said. They, they wanna, man, it's my place to condemn this person right in the moment. Two, she's caught in adultery. Where's the guy? Yeah, you're not real worried about adultery. They're just trying to catch Jesus. And, and Jesus, he's so brilliant. I, I love the way he handles it. He, he, it says he's writing in the dirt, not paying attention to him. And then he just says out to him, okay, you guys understand the law. He who is without sin, you go ahead and pick up the first rock and throw it. Go ahead, go ahead. And then he keeps writing. And nobody knows what he's writing. Some people say he's writing the sins that these guys were doing. Some said he was writing names. We don't know what he was writing. But, but as, as they sit there and wrestle with it, what came over all of them is, man, who am I to execute someone? Who am I to condemn in this way? I don't have this right. And everyone leaves. And the woman is left with the one person who did have the right to condemn her. Because he was without sin. In that moment, look, look what he says to her. I, I, I love this. Jesus stood up and he says, well, woman, where are they? Where'd they all go? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Man, I, I'm not gonna execute this judgment now. God is patient. God is merciful in it. But then notice how he finishes Notice he doesn't say, neither do I condemn you. So you just go live your best life. You do you, girl. <laughs> Who's gonna tell you what you're allowed to do, what you, what you should and shouldn't be doing? No, does he say that? That's what we hear today. That's how it gets interpreted today. No, look, look what he does. He says, I'm not gonna condemn you, but go on now and sin no more. Hey, hey, what you're doing is sinful. It is wrong. You don't need to live like this. God has something better for you and I love you enough that I'm not gonna condemn you, but I'm also not gonna tell you to go live life less than what God has for you. And sin is always less. It's always less. And Jesus loves enough to speak into it. See, the final thing, it does not mean there will be no judgment from God. It doesn't mean that there's no judgment. There'll come a day when Jesus, the one who extends this mercy and salvation now, all people will be judged. And, and the way Paul puts it in Romans, he says, Do you, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? He's being kind to you now. He's offering mercy now. He offers salvation now so that you can turn from your sin. But because of your, your stubborn and you refer, refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible judgment for yourself. He doesn't say, oh, there'll never be judgment. He says, no, you in your stubborn heart of refusing to turn to God, you're actually making it worse for yourself when the judgment comes. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
And, and I know we've spent some time with this, but the, one of the reasons I did is this verse and this concept gets thrown out so much. And I think it's easy for people that you've convinced yourself to do and live right in your own eyes. And you think you have some God's blessing over it because he says, do not judge lest you be judged. He's been merciful with you until now. But part of what makes you so angry when somebody says you're wrong or says something, what you're doing is sinful, you think it's just anger at them. It might be anger at God. It might be conviction from the Holy Spirit. And scripture says today's the day of salvation. But you'll have to humble yourself and draw near to God. The experience is he draws near with forgiveness for you. Now, let's, let's flip it around. We've talked a lot about what it doesn't mean. Let's talk about what it does mean. And a lot of us need to hear this. Look, look, look what James has been teaching us. One, don't be judgmental. Words and attitudes of criticism and condemnation. It shows up in your words and attitude. It shows up in your criticism. It shows up in the way that we speak about each other. It shows up in the things that we post. Oh, this makes me mad. Oh, I got to address this. Oh, I got to speak out against this. And, and we get this, this anger over it. A lot of times I think this, this criticism, it usually comes, as I've found it, in, in counseling situations or talking to people that are really wrestling with it, it usually comes out of our hurt. Somebody's hurt us or we've been hurt by something in the past. So we lash out against that. Sometimes it comes out of fear. We get afraid of what's happening in the world. We get afraid of what's going on in the culture. We get afraid of what this means for our kids. We get afraid and we get angry with our fear. And man, we lash. Anybody that gets near it, man, we condemn them. Those are the bad people. And we gotta point out the bad people. And, 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 and James says, man, part of what we're doing in that, guys, we're trying to be God. We live in an age where God is patient with people and he offers salvation to people. Now, yes, I need to point out where they're struggling with sin so that they know that they need a savior. I'm not diminishing that. But when we've gotten so fearful and so angry that it dominates our discourse. And then you add to that, he says, don't be hypocritical. You're disregarding God's command to love others. He says, you're so concerned where they're breaking the law, where they're doing things wrong, that you've put yourself over and above the royal law, which is to love each other. Jesus said, this is how the world's gonna know you're my disciples. You love each other. This is the mark. This is the characteristic that stands out the most. This is what you're known for. I was reading about a, a guy named Dennis who had a trip coming up and he suddenly realized he needed his suit for the trip and he was leaving the next day. So he, he looks up one hour cleaners. You know, you see that sign, one hour dry cleaners. And he sees one across town. He drives across town. He brings it in, gives him his suit. He goes, oh man, I'm so glad you guys are here. And then he says, okay, I'll be back in about an hour. And the lady looked at him, she said, you'll get this suit next Thursday. <laughs> he said, what, what are you talking about? Your sign says one hour cleaners. And she laughed. She goes, well, I know the sign says that. We don't actually do that. <laughs> no one does that anymore. I mean, the very thing that was the label over it was the key thing they don't do anymore. And, and Jesus looks at his disciples and he goes, man, if, if I'm gonna put anything over you, if, if I want the world to know you guys in any way, if I would go the one distinguishing thing the most, your sign should say, oh man, we love each other here. And a lot of times, it's the one thing we don't do. We don't do it well. 
Because it's so much easier to just kind of step back and look at each other and pick at each other. Snark at each other. Snark's a slang word. We took snide remark and we put it together, snark. In fact, I I was reading about a a writer and uh, she made a commitment. She said, my 30 days without snark. And she just made a commitment. You know, I'm not going to be snarky for 30 days. And here's how it happened. She was going to see her aunt. Her aunt had stage four breast cancer. And as she went to see her and on the drive home, she thought to herself, you know, the whole time I've known my aunt, I've never heard her say an unkind remark about anyone. She goes, what an unbelievable legacy. And so then she made a commitment. She goes, all right, for 30 days, no snark, no unkind remark. Now I gotta make all those comments. She goes, I was shocked how hard it was. How intentional you have to be. Listen to her words about it. When, when she talks about this, she says, it's so much cooler to be more sarcastic. It says, I'm above this scene. I'm above other people. And we're sarcastic. We, oh man, nobody else can get their act together, but I do. And I'm actually funny about it. She said, kindness of speech doesn't have to imply repression. It doesn't rein in humor or impede the fight for justice. It does require discipline and substantive engagement with others. See, that's what James is telling us is don't, don't be arrogant. Don't put yourself in God's place. You're not above others. You're not better than others. Man, all of us, all of us, especially in the church, those of us, we've received the mercy of Christ because we're broken and we are sinful, but he keeps forgiving. And he's changing us and he's making us more like him. And this is the place on that journey where we encourage each other the most in that. Not discourage, not point out what's wrong. It's this key way that we're called to be humble with each other before God. Because he's God and we're not. So just don't. Don't do it. When you find yourself doing it, go, who do I think I am? And and ask yourself, before you make a comment, because sometimes you have to make strong comments. James certainly doesn't shy away from that. But you always ask yourself, am I saying this? Am I thinking this to help them? Or ultimately, do I really want to hurt them? Do I really want to bring them down? Do I really want to feel better about me? So that's why I think this about them. In that moment, when you choose to do that, let me just tell you right now, you got a little bit of a God complex. And it's not your place. And it's not my place. What's the other ways that he says just don't? He says, secondly, don't assume you're in control of your life. Don't assume you're in control of your life. Here's another way that we like to assert ourselves and we kind of pretend we're God in places. Not all the time. None of us wants the job all the time. But we like it in places. Look, Look how he puts it. He says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As such, you boast in your arrogance. Again, man, who do you think you are again? All this boasting is evil. This, the second category with it, where he looks at us and, and he says, you, you think that you're in control of it all and you speak in that way. And it's interesting, the language here, especially are to business people. He's really speaking to in your job, in your financial planning, in, in all those other areas that, that it's, it's fascinating to me because if I asked everybody here in the church that are followers of Jesus, if I say, hey, do you believe God's sovereign? Absolutely believe he's sovereign. We absolutely give him sovereignty when we're here in church. Over my spiritual life, he gets all of it. Now, tomorrow morning, you know, when I get back in the real world, I better get back in control. 
because I've got these plans and I got to do this and I'm in charge of that and I'm going to do and I'm going to and this and my kids are going to and we've got a schedule and they're going to and, and all the things that we do. And James says, whoa, 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 whoa. Now I know as I say this, you go, well, Tim, I mean, is there anything wrong with planning? Aren't we supposed to plan? Here's the point of it is he says, the Bible teaches us to plan, but never to presume. It's not planning that's the problem, it's the presumption. It's the presumption I have the ability to deliver on my plans. It's the presumption that my plans are as foolproof as God's plans, so of course he's gonna have this play out exactly like I laid it out. There's this presumption that moves into it. And, and James says it's killing you. It's hurting you. There's this, this part of it where you are so stressed out all the time. And as a culture, we live with higher anxiety than anyone before. And I think part of it is a key thing. We have more information, we have more means, we have more abilities than any culture before. You look at generations past, they didn't have the agency over their lives that we have which you would think leads to higher levels of happiness than ever before. But I think it comes down to this core thing because we have all that and we we try to control it like we're God. And, And the problem with that, I love how James just inserts these two things. He says, and you don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. And and your life, if you really think about it, it's like a mist. It's like the fog that comes in. You ever been down at the beach and you're like, when will the fog burn off? Sometimes it's heavy, but it usually burns off when the sun comes out. James puts in this, he, he says, life has more uncertainty and brevity than we like to admit. Life has more uncertainty. We we make plans and we put things out there and then every so often life reminds us you're not in control. I mean, good grief. We've just come through a global pandemic. Anybody have that on your bingo card? Did you ever think you were gonna face that in your lifetime? Did Did you ever think, I mean, just rewind just even a couple of years ago, did you ever think the whole world was just gonna shut down? And you're sitting there going, I I, I can't even go outside. And you you realize I'm not in control as much as I'd like to think I am. In a moment's notice, that diagnosis comes that you never saw coming. A, A moment's notice, somebody in your life, maybe in your relationship, maybe your spouse looks at you and says, yeah, I'm not committed to this anymore. Your business turns upside down. There's this uncertainty to life. And and even as I'm talking, everything I throw out here, I can feel it, the anxiety in the room's going up. It's like, do not remind me these things. But James says, wait a second, step back. There's a healthy place in reminding. We're not in control but he is, even in the most uncertain parts of our life. Uncertainty and misery go hand in hand. We hate it as people. I saw one therapist though that said, and I want you to hear the exact line, most people prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. Most people would choose to be miserable, but at least I'm in control of it. It's my controlled misery instead of the misery of uncertainty. Now, as Christians, we don't have to choose the either or on that, by the way. But we do, and this is what James says. We do have to recognize, oh, I'm not God. And I'm not in control. And so I'm gonna trust his sovereignty, not just when I'm in church, not just over my spiritual life. I'm gonna trust it in all of life because I recognize not only am I not in control, 
Life is shorter than we like to admit. And I, I, I don't know, I'm feeling it more these days. You start feeling your age. My youngest now has his driver's license. He's just had his wisdom teeth out. I mean, we're sitting there looking at all the milestones. I mean, in the home now, we only have two left. Two that are in high school, one's a senior. And for us, that feels really quiet. Some of you are going, two, Ooh, that's a lot. You know, we, we were back in Memphis where I grew up during our break. And uh, I went over to Memorial Park Cemetery. And, and I walked, there's a section of the cemetery, I'm standing there and you look down and there's my grandfather and my grandmother and my mother and my father, and my brother. A hillside right near it are two nieces whose lives were tragically taken by a dreadful disease as little girls. And I don't go there to be morbid and I don't bring it up to be morbid. But there's this sobering reminder that life is shorter than we like to admit. And we're not in control as much as we like to admit. And James says, for those of us who are in the church, we have a choice. That either makes you really anxious or in humility when you step back and go, I was never meant to be God. And so I'm gonna trust God with all my life. It's this choice in it, in humility, I trust God to be God over my life and my plans. That's why when he puts that phrase out there, he says, God willing, God willing. He, he's not doing it. We don't say it like, oh, every time you say something, you got to say God willing or if God wills. But it is this reminder that every time I make a plan, every time I'm sitting down, next time you're sitting down and you've got your retirement accounts open and you've got your plan going, you know what would be a good thing to do? Just step back and go, you know what? If God wills us, if this is actually his plan. Next time you're thinking about your relationship future and your dating and all the plan that you have with that, step back and go, man, if God wills, and you give him this. The, the Puritans had, had this little line, they would use it in Latin, Dio Valente, God willing. And a lot of times when they wrote a letter, when they wrote plans down, when they put something on a ledger or anything else, they would put the letters DV right next to it. It was just this reminder that everything I'm planning, everything I wanna do, everything I want my kids to do, everything that I'm, I'm getting so stressed out about and I'm, I'm so determined I've got to control, in that moment I just stop and I go, God's in control. And so I release this to him, if God wills. One more category, just don't, real short one, short verse. He says in it, don't delay doing what you know to be right. Don't delay, don't wait. Look at this last verse. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Ooh, that's a strong verse. He says, when, when you come to these things that, that God's convicted, God's called you to do, and you don't do it, and he may be only convicting you, by the way. It may be something that he's working on with you in your life. This is why you can't judge or compare anybody else. Well, they're not doing it. No, this is between you and God. See, I think there's all these categories in the Bible. It's interesting to me. We have all these categories of things that God calls us to do that we've kind of created electives. Remember when you were in college and you had the core courses, you know, in high school core courses, you can't graduate unless you do things. There's some things that we've said, yeah, every Christian, man, you got to do these things. And then there's a lot of things, and a lot of the New Testament even, that you look at and you kind of go, yeah, they're good things to do. They're electives. If you're a really good Christian, you do those things. And we, we kind of give ourselves a pass on all of them. It's interesting, if you read through the Old Testament, they had different sacrifices. And a lot of times they would make a sacrifice. It was their way of dealing with their sin before Christ had come. 
And there were sacrifices for, they had two categories, sins of commission and sins of omission. Now, commission, we get the word commit. And this, this would be the sins that I did things I shouldn't have done. I mean, it's just pretty clear. And those are the things we identify pretty clearly. But then this whole category of sins of omission, we get the word omit. Things I was supposed to be doing that I never did. And they actually treated it like it was a real issue, like it was a sin issue. See, I, I, I think there's these core things in life that God's called us to do. And you read through commands. I mean, you read through the New Testament, it says, man, you need to spend your life in prayer. You talk to him regularly. You spend your life in his word. You interact with him. Serve others. You actually serve people. You care for the poor. That's what God's been convicting me about lately. It's just, do you really care for the poor? How are you tangibly doing? I mean, I know you think about it, but are you actually doing these things? You, you actually take your finances and you give to God. You actually treat that like it's a real command. Not one of those extra things out of it. See, James is, is direct on this. And, and here's the part of it. When we keep putting off what we know we should do, it becomes sin for us. If it always stays in a category, oh yeah, I'm getting to it. Oh yeah, I heard a good sermon on that. Oh, that was such a good sermon on that. I'm going to think about that for a while. Oh, that convicted me. See, we, we can convince we're doing something when, when really may, maybe we started or we heard about it or that, but we've been in pause for a long time with it. It's like sometimes I'll, I'll come into our, our family room and on the TV, somebody's been watching a program, they're streaming a program. And for some reason they stop, they press pause. And so it's kind of frozen. You know, you see it frozen on the screen. And so, you know, I'll walk through and see it. Oh, somebody's watching something. And then 10 minutes later, you, you ever had this? You come back in, it's still frozen on the screen. 30 minutes later, it's still up. And so finally, I, you know, I'll reach the remote and just turn it off. And then a little while later, you hear this voice. Who turned off my program? I was watching that. And you go, really? Were you watching it? Because because it was paused longer than the program itself. They weren't watching. See, I think we do this with a lot of areas in our life. We hear about it, maybe we start it, we have that. But somewhere along the way, we just pressed pause on it and we determined, yeah, I, I don't have to worry about that right now. I'm gonna just pause that right now. And, and James says, I hate to break it to you, if there are things in your life that God's telling you you need to do, it's not your place to pause it. And it's not your place to, to create elective category. You need to own it for what it is. And, and I know as I say that, you go, oh, Tim, you're being legalistic or that, and I'm not as bad as other people. Oh, judging again? Here's why God says this, and I'll close with this. God says this because there is a better life God wants you to experience on the other side of obedience. God never convicts about sin because he wants less for us, because he wants to condemn us. Remember, we've seen this whole passage, he's merciful to us. But he is willing to look at us and go, hey, we've been dealing with this. We've been talking about this. We, we've been wrestling with this. Will you trust me enough to obey because there's a better life for you on the other side of that obedience? Guys, these are real areas, I think for all of us, we struggle maybe more than we like to admit. And as we finish out, in fact, I'm gonna have the team come on out because this, this last song is actually, we're gonna make this last song a place of a prayer, a place of, of submission, a place of maybe as we not just sing the words, we, we think in our heart. And as the team comes on out, I, I want you during this song, there's some of you here today, if you're honest with yourself, you've been judging somebody for a while and you need to let it go. 
You need to stop trying to be God in their life and let God be God. And so give it to him now. Some of you, there's key plans you have in your life. There's things that that you're holding on to. And this is an opportunity for you to step back and go, God, I'm going to let you, Dio Valente, if God wills, you have control. And for some of you, there's something he's been telling you to do for a while. And you need to go ahead and do it. And own the fact that you haven't. Confess that to him. And, And with him, go, God, I don't know why I'm not taking that next step, but I trust you with it. Let's use this song as our prayer and then I'll come back and and close us out in final prayer. You can have it all Every part of my world Take this life and breathe on This heart that is now yours You can have it all Every part of my world Take this life and breathe on This heart that is now yours joy I found surrendering my crown at the feet of the king who surrendered everything and all the peace that When I'm broken and undone By your unfailing grace I can lift my voice and say
Father, we come before you and I, I just confess that's an easier song for me to sing than it is to live. You know those areas of my life, those areas of my heart that I'm so quick to grab control. Lord, I release it to you. I trust you, you're God, I'm not. Lord, I pray that for each of us here. I pray that we would recognize you, you weren't made us, you, we weren't made to carry this but you were, <laughs> you have always been, you are all powerful, you are all holy, and you are all loving. Lord, we release to you today. For some of us, we're releasing something that we need forgiveness for. For some of us, we're releasing control that we've had. Some of us were releasing a judgmental attitude and heart we've had towards someone else. Lord, we give it all to you. We lay it before you. And we thank you in this moment, you meet us here. You draw near to those who will humble themselves before your throne. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.